Welcome to Small Town Shenanigans, episode 18. We are finishing up the year of 2022, the first year of Small Town Shenanigans. And uh, we started this out for fun, just to capture these stories. And by golly, it's, uh, it's word of mouth is kind of taken off. Uh, we just got some stats from Spotify. And a few of them that jumped out at me was, we are being listened to in 16 different countries. And... In the top 15% of comedy in the United States, comedy podcast, top 5% globally. So thanks to all our listeners. Um, we're doing this for fun, but it's just it's cool when people enjoy your stories, right? So today's episode 18, wrapping up. This is the last normal podcast. And this is a this this one is was really fun because we did we did a little Montana history of the greatest sporting event ever. Uh, Brian and I got to meet the uh, Munchkins from the Wizard of Oz in about 20 years ago, and that's a funny story. So we're going to share a few of those, and then we're wrapping up uh, the year. We've got a couple calls with probably 10 different people that wanted to be on for our year-end requested Quigley Awards, which which has been a lot of fun. We did one of those calls. We're going to do another one this Sunday, and then I'll edit it and get it out before January 1st for everybody. So thanks again for all of our listeners. Here's episode 18 with R.J. Burns. But today is it's great. We've got, um, I think, what kind of a renaissance man, maybe the, probably one of the most interesting people in our lineage, in the Burns family. And he lives on the High Line in Shelby, Montana. We're really lucky to have him. He's, uh, he's got a great, a ton of stories. He's done work um, in the film industry and music industry, and he just has interesting stories. So we're really lucky to have him. Brian, you want to introduce our guest? So this is R.J. Burns. He's, uh, he's from the lineage, like Bill said, you know, and I think everyone holds their own little flag in the lineage, but R.J.'s got a pretty colorful past. We, we've been uh, trying to get him on here to to kind of give us his take because, you know, every Burns has got their own story and he's got a different one. So our, it's RJ Burns right there on the high line in, uh, in oil yes. country in Shelby, Montana, down the road from cup bank. I mean, it's amazing. I think we talked about this before the rivalry between cup bank and Shelby that it's only 20 miles, but you think that people were born in a different country because neither one of them can drive depending on who you talk to. Right. And that's, that's always the biggest differentiation of, of, people from different towns. They just don't know how to drive. So anyway, RJ Burns from Shelby, Montana. Yeah. Thanks for coming on RJ. I, you know, what does RJ stand for? I don't know if I've ever even known that. Is it Robert? Well, I make up all, I make up all kinds of names for those initials uh, just because it's fun and most people believe them. One of my use for a while was uh, people asked me for it when I was driving. I said, well, it stands for Rolando Jacaro. 
And of course, they look at me really confused, and I wait a few seconds. And I say, "Well, I'm from South Africa, so don't really try to pronounce it. Just use my initials, and it works that way." You know, this this reminded me of Robert something that. Jost. So, Artie, t- tell us a little bit about what you. This is a, a true jokester. Tell us a little bit what the names of your children are. Well, <laughs> that was a long list of names <laughs> that I had. I wanted. I wanted a boy and a girl so I could name one Rose and the other Royce. Yep. Sounded kind of cool. <laughs> and um, somehow that didn't work. So um, my daughter's name was uh, Mercedes. Mercedes Burns. Because I thought it would be kind of cool <laughs> when I'd show somebody a picture of my uh, my uh, 1984 Mercedes. They go, what? You take a picture of your car? I said, oh, no, no, it's my daughter's name. And it fits well, Mercedes Burns. <laughs> you know, yeah, and then of course uh, I wanted to name Austin. Uh, well, that's a car, also, but it's also a longtime family name on my mother's side. But uh, I thought about uh, Aston Martin Burns. Sounds good. Didn't you have the Defo- was DeForest ever in there? It. Oh, and DeForest, yeah, DeForest Burns, and sort of the trees <laughs> and the bushes and everything else. And that brings me to, uh, reminds me of a band that I had in high school was called Bob Burns and the rest explode. (laughs) We we weren't even a one hit number. The name got a lot of attention. You know, know, location and and name is a big deal. So, you know, that brings in a lot of business. So, so the Robert Burns and the rest explode. I think that that even ties into maybe one of the, the stories that you that you might bring up about, um, because we do have a, a touch of the pyromania uh, <laughs> for some of our guests that we have here. Dr. Don uh, brought a little touch of the pyromania. So anytime you can have water balloons, fire, or towing a car away, it seems to make the cut here uh, on our podcast. We, uh, my, my son hangs around with some guys here in town that, that they like to blow up things. Um, and uh, so they made bombs and blew up a couple of cars out at the farm. Whoa, 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 whoa. And, what, uh, uh, back, so that they blew up cars? Well, they had this old junker car, and they made this pipe bomb. And uh, one day, and they wanted to buy all this ammo because they wanted to take bullets apart to get the gunpowder out of them. And they couldn't buy them because they were a certain age, and I happened to be there. And said, would you mind buying this stuff for us? They said, well, what are you going to do? Said, well, we're going to make a pipe bomb. I mean, we're going to make a thing to blow up that old car out in the field. I said, okay. In the dead of so, summer, uh, please tell me. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fire season. So, uh, of course, it's out in the farm there, and it was in a stubble field. There was nothing that burned. But uh, he said, great, I'm buying uh, gunpowder for a bunch of guys who are going to blow up things. And uh, But can that sort of fit with what I did when I was really young, dumb, and stupid? And now I'm not so young, but I'm pretty stupid sometimes. But we thought it'd be really kind of cool to drop a match in those little holes in the uh, manhole cover. So the, where did the manhole? Where, where did this go to? This was just part of the the sewer or the water? The you know like oh yeah, it was, it was a sewer line, and of course the gas line just happened to run through that same area, and it was just <laughs> a half a mile from my house here, and out in the middle of the street. And so me and two other guys, we lit these matches, and they kept going out on us. So we we tied like. I think two or three of them together and got a big flame out of that, dropped it down the hole. And well, I wonder what's going to boom. And it blew up. So and was the cover my first like, thought was, is it, was the cover on? That? Like, so, so you dropped it yeah. down into this manhole cover. 
Well, you know how heavy a manhole cover is. <laughs> but when it blows up, it's not any more than a piece of paper flying up in the air. And when it comes back down, it's a hundred pounds worth of steel. I mean, how close and, did that uh, thing come to your head? Like, if that thing blew off, I mean, it could it could take your your head off your shoulders, couldn't? If your head would have oh, been, of course it could. But you know, when you're that young, <laughs> you're immortal, and nothing will happen to you. And when you stand before the pearly gates, they say, "Well, we're not going to let you guys in because you blow up things too much." <laughs> but nobody got hurt. But it certainly scared us to death. Well, there's two. And I mean, it, it could have got you on the way up, or it could have got you on the way down. Where did the thing land? Or both. Well, it went yeah. up in the air, and it was over. And then there was this loud crash, and it came right back down. I don't think it went up very high. I don't know, but my had visions of it flying up in the air, twenty, thirty feet, coming down, killing us. But uh, no, it just went up in the air a little ways and came right back down and landed where it was. But it didn't quite go in the hole. It was sort of crooked. So naturally, we had one of those moments where we said a couple of things that I won't be here, but uh, we all took off in three different directions. So it had the hand and grenade effect, right? So when it, hit, it hits the ground, the it hits it oh, yeah. like a hand grenade, it hits the ground, and you all scatter like the thing blew up. I, I, I love that. Oh, yeah. It, it, yeah, it blew up. The thing, there was something in there that was highly explosive. Anyway. Uh, yeah, so I walked home casually thinking, what am I going to do? And, of course, my grandmother, um, who could hear anything and see anything, she was standing on the back steps, and she did you hear that big bang? I said, uh, I think it was down the street away, so I wasn't really sure. I was just on my Diversion. way home, and I heard it. And, uh, you know, I'm Irish, so I can lie really good. But... Um, Anyway, um, and then I walked back down there, and the manhole was setting crooked in that hole. And okay, I'm not going to touch this. I'm just going to walk away. And somebody came along and put it back in properly. So here's but, a manhole. Uh, yeah, with a, was, a manhole with the, like like oh, there's gas in there. I mean, I don't think that would that would pass <laughs> code today, where you could just. <laughs> Boy, I could have fun with yeah, that. It, those uh, something in there was explosive. It could have been a sewer gas and and natural gas. Who knows? It was. I fine. didn't research it any further after that. No one got hurt. And the manhole cover is still there. And every time I walk by that, I keep thinking about dropping those matches oh. in there. <laughs> I try I not to walk down that end of the alley anymore. Can you imagine but, uh, just the other people? I mean, you talked to your grandmother. She heard it. But there had to be quite a ruckus. I mean, people because that was – her house was kind of farther down the alley. I mean, there's probably some houses in between that. I'm, surpri I'm surprised the scuttlebutt didn't get kicked off with the, uh, the old manhole cover. So now – so Shelby, Montana, uh, population 3,100 people. I wanted to talk a little bit about – because I find this super fascinating – the greatest sporting event ever in Montana was not recently or in the last 50 years. It was 100 years ago. It was 99 years ago, 1923, Shelby, Montana. At that time, I think, RJ, you said the population was around 500 people. Well, the the greatest sporting event ever in Montana was the boxing match between this, the heavyweight champion of the world, Jack Dempsey, a, a, a white uh, Italian, um, Irishman versus Tommy Gibbons. And I wanted to just, RJ, I want you to, since you've talked to some people that were actually at the fight, I wanted you to just give us some some cool anecdotes about that fight. Well, those guys 
My neighbor for years was a fellow that he was a very young man at the time. And he worked at one of the banks that uh, where this whole thing started. Well, with it was a real estate and insurance company. Uh, but he also worked at the local bank there as well. And they're reading the newspaper on some cold winter day about some fight someplace. And somebody said, you know, we could probably sponsor something like that if we could get a couple of guys to come to Montana. And and they just started hashing this over. And pretty soon they got to believe in the fact that they could actually pull this off with the number one boxer in the world. That was uh, Jack Dempsey. And uh, so they sent a guy off to Chicago to meet with him as manager and and he told him, yeah, you come up with this much money, I'm, I'm sure we can probably put it together. And How about there's a that? whole lot there had to be some whiskey. There had to be some whiskey involved. That was one that they're like, you know what, we're we're up here in Shelby, Montana. I mean, you know, this is the oil town, and there's 500 people here. We could support anything. And so then in the morning when they, you know, they wiped the cobwebs out of their eyes and their head was ringing. They were held accountable to each other to, to at least start to pursue oh, yeah. this thing. That's how that I picture this going. Yeah. For around a hundred thousand dollars, if I remember that right. I um, think it was three. I think they yeah. paid Dempsey three hundred thousand. Well, by the time he finally got yeah. here, yeah, it was three hundred grand. Initially, it was like a hundred grand, and then oh. you know to to bring him out here, which is which is crazy. I mean, think about that. That's like over $5 million today. And we're talking about a town yeah. of five. That shows you how big of a sport. So back then it was baseball. It was boxing. I mean, those were the biggest sports. So you say that that was the biggest sporting event in the state of Montana. At the time, it was probably the biggest sporting event in the country, right? Oh, that, I mean, that's a good point because at the time yeah. I was reading and they there was um, like the top five athletes in, in the world at that time. They called them the big five. So at, at the time of this fight, Babe Ruth was at his prime. Red Grange, Bob, the great Bobby Jones golfer, pilled it, uh, Bill Tilden, and Jack Dempsey. So, I mean, those. Um, you're right, Brian. I mean, this this wasn't just the biggest sporting event ever in Montana at the time. That was probably the biggest sporting event in the United States. But RJ, talk about the hitch that happened right right at the end, because this is really. If you look this up. They talk about the devastation to Shelby, Montana. So how, how did it go wrong? Well, the, the Dempsey would never, Dempsey's manager would never confirm that there was actually going to be a fight until he got the final payment. And he had to have that up front at least a week beforehand. And it never really happened. So all the trains that were booked or that were going to come to Shelby they weren't ready. They were just going to say, no, we're not going to go because we don't know if there's going to be a fight. Oh. And um, and they had built three other train depots in town. They were expecting trains from the West Coast, the East Coast, and, and further south. Everything traveled by train in those days. Dempsey didn't stay in Shelby. He stayed in Great Falls. And Shelby was on the train. Um, there was, of course, roads, but uh, everybody traveled by train a lot. And uh, Tommy Gibbons stayed here in Shelby. So he was here all the time. Oh, I should say a month or so before the fight. But this was the 4th of July. And this is outside Arena. And this was not a cloudy day. It was blistering hot. And they built an arena for 50, let's see, I think it's 40,000 people. Yeah. Holy shit. <laughs> 40,000 of 500. <laughs> yeah. And ringside tickets for that, and I don't know how many rows ringside goes back, but they were 50 bucks a pop. 
Now, which, which what is that? What is that? I don't um, even know what that about is. A thousand, like a thousand about bucks a thousand bucks or so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, at least, yeah. So and, they so, uh, so they didn't say they now I because when we like, we talked about this artist so I I you know I was digging in a little bit and one thing that I thought was interesting so like when you mentioned RJ they didn't I mean basically July first they're like this fight's yeah. not happening oh, so everyone that was heading there well well like on the first they're saying it's not happening so people that were heading that direction didn't you know stopped coming and then it was back on yeah. on the fourth but the thing that the, the interesting thing. Shelby didn't have enough money to. Uh, I think it was uh, they were short like a hundred thousand or something. And so like, well, if we don't have it, it's not happening. So you know what they offered them? Fifty thousand sheep. They offered. They offered what? Uh, Dempsey and his manager fifty thousand sheep. And they said, "What are we <laughs> going to do with fifty thousand sheep in New York City?" So that was that that little barter didn't happen. But that was their their proposal was was sheep in Montana. So we don't want to get yeah, into the Montana and sheep that. story, but. But that sounds about right, you know. <laughs> One other thing too that I that I read was cattle that, horses. That was a big deal. As a matter of fact, in Montana, uh, that's still a standing law. Uh, uh, horse theft is a hanging offense. I want that. A little outdated. I wonder the last but, time someone uh, stole a horse. <laughs> depends on what town you're in. <laughs> it's serious business when you get over that on that side of the mountains. But I, I pulled oh, that. Yeah. Hey, RJ, I pulled that. They actually have that fight. You can pull up um, Jack Dempsey, um, Tommy Gibbons, Shelby Montana. It comes right up on YouTube. Those two guys, they were specimens. I mean, they those guys were cut up and they were ripped. And they, I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have jacked with either one of those guys. How many people ended no. up at the fight, RJ? Like, what was the, I mean, what, what did they say? Do you remember? I think maybe the, the ticket sales might have been, uh, 10, 15% of the total capacity of that place. And there was hundreds of people all around there because it was kind of a little bit of a basin. If you know Shelby, there's a lot of hills around here. And people were sitting way up on the hill watching the fight. And when they realized that people were just going in to watch the fight, they said, well, some of them just said, yeah, let's go down there and see if we can get in. And they did. So the story ended up being that all these people crashed the gates to get into the fight. Well, there was no gate to crash because everybody just said, yeah, go ahead and watch it. It's kind of like Woodstock. It was a free concert. <laughs> yeah, it, it turned out to be a free fight. They said Shelby was the, the, the town that was built on oil and destroyed by boxing. Uh-huh. I mean, it, that, that was a, the, the, the prize fight. I mean, and Gibbon well, was 90 and 2 coming in this. busy thing. around there for a long time. What's that? And, yeah. uh, and still is a bit. Um, but, um, yeah, it's kept, you know, oil and uh Farming, that's what this community is, and it probably will remain that until farming is outlawed and oil is yep. almost there. One, well, thing I, about, I, one thing they forget about was given. So that guy was 90 and 2 when he came into that fight. And so this wasn't yeah. just like a, the rim rattling guy that they brought in from Sunburst or something to come in and fight. This guy was from the Midwest. He was a, he was a worthy opponent, and he is the only person to go 15 rounds with Jack Dempsey, yep. and it happened in Shelby, Montana. Wow. Oh and that, yeah, that build that board was, was up for what, like a hundred years on right there uh, outside of town, wasn't it? I remember it going to Shelby. The billboard was up. I don't know if they had to get up there and oh, paint the, it. Yeah, it. the billboard was up there for a long time, and the arena, of course, was torn down because all that wood that they put it together with the the people that built it said well, we're going to take our wood back, and then they sold it to a lot of people around town for building homes and whatever. And most of it, I don't know where it, it came from, what mill. I think it was probably around Kalispell. Uh, but um, 
Yeah. All that wood was used. To they had a lot of money to make up. A lot of people had to be What's paid. That? They had they had to make up. They they had to they had a little. The only person who think really got paid was Dempsey, and everyone else took it in the shorts. I think didn't they? Oh, definitely. I think Dempsey's manager was his name was Kearns, I believe. Yep. Um, Jack Kearns. And he was in a, a railroad car that was just going back and forth all the time. He wasn't going to let Jack out of there until he got this final payment, whether it was sheep or money. I don't know. I haven't heard the sheep story yet, but it sounds really good. It's but, there. Um, it's, I yeah. Google it. So that's and he truth. kept that train, uh, that train car his, um, away from everybody, and it was moving all the time. So when that fight was over, he was taking Dempsey and the cash, and they were out they of town. They were gone. Yep, it was, they yeah, were out. They were yeah. out the door. Um, I don't think Dempsey really cared for Shelby too much, and the people of Shelby didn't really care much for him as well. And so Gibbon was kind of the favorite. An interesting fact about uh, Gibbons: so he went back. He's like from the Midwest, like in Minnesota or Michigan or something. He became a sheriff. He was a sheriff after that for like twenty years, and he housed Dillinger. Okay, so so he had he actually had Dillinger in his jail when he was a sheriff back in the Midwest. Really? Oh, no kidding. Yeah. Oh, that's super interesting. I also one other little anecdote. Um, so they found I I read that they found oil in Shelby in 1922. So that was only one year before that fight. So I wonder if that if if they found oil then if the if the money was flowing in town at that point. Oh, probably it was. Yeah, the county is named after the fellow that discovered uh, oil, and that was uh, Tool. I don't remember his first name. Okay, was. Ross Tool. But, uh, well, Ross was a professor at Missoula. I know that, but I don't know if it was the same name. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, Tool was the big oil man around here. And for a long time, pretty much the lease belonged to the Tool family. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they did quite well here. They probably were wishing and that they would have got was, oil a couple of years before that. You know, I mean, one year they didn't have the time to ramp up, you know, $5.2 million to pay Dempsey. Maybe if they would have had that fight maybe three or four years later when they had, you know, had a little cash flow, we call it, it might have been better off for Shelby. They, they probably could have pulled it off better. I mean, in those days, oil wasn't really drilling. They had a, a cable rig, and basically it would pound a hole in the ground. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, the wells here are pretty shallow. Well, that wow. happened in Beverly Hills with Jed, uh, Jed uh, Clampett, didn't it? He was out shooting some uh, raccoons and, and, and struck oil oh, yeah. the way Shot I remember it. Shot a hole in the ground back home, and, and up came uh, a bubbling crew. Uh, what, he called, what he called Texas tea, or somebody called it that. <laughs> That's the Hollywood And then he moved to Hollywood and had a great place there. I loved it, that show because he had uh, what he always called the cement pond in the backyard. So, so that that kind of a good transition into RJ's you know experience in the in the in the theater world you know with movies because RJ's he's been he's a jack of all trades um, and been and been in the mix for quite a while haven't you RJ as far as back and forth to LA and, and on different productions. Oh yeah, I always liked well I you know growing up in a small town we had a really nice theater here I was always going to movies and. Um, I thought, well, that's what I got to be involved in. Mostly, it's a big ego trip to see yourself up on the screen, of course. and not knowing anything about the business. But I didn't care. I just wanted to be in the motion picture business, so I kept pursuing it, and uh, have had some success. Not much, uh, not a lot compared to most people. But Hollywood, uh, as it is and always has been, is a really brutal place to try to work. Fortunately, that business has expanded all over the place now. Well, that's you know, interesting thing about that is. I've, you know, my, I have very limited experience, 
you know, with, with theater. But I will tell you one time where Bill and I were, uh, I went out to visit Bill and we were somewhere in Indiana. We're, I don't know where we were at, but um, we were cruising down the, the interstate. And sure enough, we came across this convention. What was it, Bill? A convention? It was like the Wizard of Oz yep, convention. It's in, it's in Chesterton, Indiana, which is up on Lake Michigan. And it, it's, the, it's the biggest Wizard of Oz festival in the United States. And uh, they have it every year. And we, Brian and I, this is this is kind of this is one of the more memorable people I, I ever got to meet. We we had the opportunity to meet some of the Munchkins from the actual Wizard of Oz movie. And I'll let mm-hmm. Brian tell the story about when we met the 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 fellow that was part of the Lollipop Gang. So I didn't know that. I don't know if Bill knew that that this was going on, but we walked in. This could be one of the most bizarre conversations I've had with anybody. <laughs> and because I didn't know what to, you know, it's one of those things like if I'm going to meet someone that, you know, has some type of, knowledge, I, I have some questions or I would, some things I want to know. I walk into this thing and it is the Wizard of Oz. Um, con- I guess it's an annual convention that they do in this little town. I'd, there was nothing more than really a hotel there, but we walk in the door and we see all of these little people, you know, and there's probably like card, there's like, I don't know, 20 card tables set up and they're playing a board game. And so I didn't, I didn't even think that was part of it, but they were over there playing this board game and in front of it stacked up this, this wizard of Oz monopoly board game. So I guess in conjunction to this festival, they have a tournament for the wizard of Oz board game. And the qualification is you have to be a small person to play in it. So you have all these <laughs> At the time, they, they were calling themselves midgets or what? I don't know. Small people. There was there was about twenty tables and all these little people playing a board game for this 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 tournament for board games. So that was off to the right, and I thought, okay, you don't see that every day. Okay, everyone's feet are just dangling off these chairs and playing this board game. <laughs> so, so then, off to the side, this guy off to the left was obviously in charge of this whole thing. He's sitting behind the table, he had his Wizard of Oz outfit on. And his name was Jerry or B- Jerry Markin. So later on, we found out that he was one of the Lollipop gang. And he went into this whole thing about how important he was. Um, and he actually is the last, he was the last survivor of the Wizard of Oz. And he died probably, I don't know, what was four, it? A couple four years, years ago. Four, four years, years ago. ago. He was 98. <laughs> but he was the most, one of the most, I mean, he, we walked up there. And he was talking about how great he was. And I mean, he was really, when did the Wizard of Oz come out? Like in the 20s or something? 1933 or something like that. Okay. So it was like the first color movie ever, you know, so it was a a big deal. But he was part of the Lollipop gang. So we start asking him questions about it. And he was, you know, talking about being part of the Lollipop gang and all that stuff. But the where he kind of twisted it a little bit, things, the, the conversation changed a little bit when he started talking about the interactions with Judy Garland, okay, Dorothy, a.k.a. Dorothy. And he said that they were getting, um, that they didn't, they were, the way he phrased it was, she was equally as impressed with us as we were of her. Which I'm sure Judy Garland is just fascinated by these, you know, these little people that that just just blew her hair back, right? But it turns out he says, and we, you know, we were getting very, us little people get handy, handsy with her. And I'm like, what does that mean? He goes, well, she would get mad because we would reach and grab at her, 
and they would have alcohol. They would have alcohol. So the, I guess the munchkins would just get hammered at night. And he was talking about it, that they would give them, they started rationing the amount of booze that they could have. So they had vodka and they would give them, and he had his with him. It looked like a thimble. It was, it, was, just, it was, I remember, and it had his initials on it. They gave him all these thimbles, and they could only have so many shots of alcohol in this little thimble. So they, they call them thimble shots. So they were, they were rationing these things. But Judy Garland said they were just absolute drunks because we, we, we found – you know, I, I looked later, but he kept making this comment. He said – and we got butterfly net a couple times. Me and this guy here, we got butterfly netted. And I'm like, and we're what like, what? We asked like, what him like four times, about? what the wait, slow down. What are you talking about? Yeah, butterfly netted. And so and he was kind of, it was kind of a badge of honor how many times you could, how many times you could, you know, get butterfly netted. So to that, like getting drunk and, and getting rationed thimbles and all this stuff was just, it was just too much for me. So I said, I don't understand this. So he goes, well, let's sit down and have a conversation. So he wheels around the end of this. This is the, the, the I wish I could have had my phone up. He wheels oh, around the man. end of the table and he says, there's a couple chairs over here. So he, we're walking towards these chairs because he wants to sit down and really get into detail. He got about five steps before that chair and he started, he started running. And we got about a step ahead. He jumped up in the air and spun in the air and then landed straight down in the chair. So I oh, guess that's right. I forgot <laughs> about that. Like it was this thing and he must've, he was pretty old, but he sprint. I guess that's the only way he could get up into that chair was sprinting towards it and be about a step away and jump in the air and spin like Tinkerbell and then land straight on the chair and kind of threw his hands up in the air like, ta-da. And so <laughs> we sat down, we sat down and talked to him and he would, he went through the whole thing about how, you know, he got butterfly netted. Turns, turns out what that was. And Judy Garland came out with a book and she talks about it. She said they were so drunk that they had to get these butterfly nets out to round them up. So if they got if they got out of hand, they'd take a butterfly net, I guess, and just kind of throw it over top of them and then kind of wrestle them back over into the, wherever they were supposed to be. And they'd squirt out again and they'd chase them down. It's kind of like team roping is what it sounded like to me. They were team roping with butterfly nets and scooping these munchkins up and then throwing them back in the corner. And then they'd squirt out again. And, they'd, you know, it's kind of like chasing chickens or herding sheep or whatever. But anyway, he, he was – he was a pretty famous guy, and he had his picture. He was the guy in the movie that was handing Judy Garland or Dorothy a lollipop or the lollipop game. Oh, so he had okay. this picture of that, and he was autographing it. Well, he, he kind of had this, you know, like, who's more important, me or Judy Garland? So when he would autograph these pictures, he would autograph right on top of her face. <laughs> so like <laughs> – You'd offer that. Well, I know Brian, and you, you, you gave him another. You you grabbed another picture because we we paid like five bucks a piece for those. And and you said, okay, could you sign down here? So you asked him to sign at the bottom, and he didn't even he didn't even hesitate. He just went right back to. Well, no, he signed a little bit lower, but like his first name was Jerry. So he took the top of the J and kind of looped it right in front of her face and then signed the rest of it down below. So the signature was probably two inches below that, but he looped that J, J right over top of her face. And then I'm like, okay, whatever. I'm not going to. You know, it. his, I don't know if you remember, but so there was a minute where you were talking to him and I, um, I was talking to his wife. And um, when you, when you, when he said that they would get handsy with, with Judy Garland, which I've read a lot of different articles, which that definitely happened. His wife, her face got really red. She was a little person too. She was in the movie and she goes, damn it. I hate it when he talks about that. And I, and I said, what do you mean? And she goes, she goes, I, he goes, she said, you don't know how many times we had to sit there 
when we weren't being filmed, we weren't in the movie, us ladies, us, you know, the little people, the ladies, and we had to, we had to sew another dress for Judy. And I'm like, what do you mean? She said, she said, well, those guys would, you know, they would get, they would do their thimble shots and then they would, you know, then they acted up and they would kind of tug at her dress. And she said that they, they probably made at least 10 to 15 dresses for Julie Garland because they were getting so handsy. What handsy and handy? I well, can't no, what, Jer- what Jerry said was, he goes, we were very handy and handsy. <laughs> and he kind of throws his elbow up in the air and kind of nudge, you know, like that. We were handy and handsy. I'm like, okay, you know what? This conversation is, t- is taking a turn. So, But you also, okay. he also said that, um, that they are someone, I don't know if we read this, but we were talking about this, Brian. But someone said that Judy's like, hey, you know, can you please tell them just to keep them out, their hands themselves? And what did they tell her, the, the executives of the movie? Just, they're just like, you know what, just go with it. These guys are hard to come by. We, you know, we can't upset, we can't upset the apple cart. So they, she, they basically just said, come on, take one for the team, you know? Yeah. So, RJ, did you like yeah, when you were down in guys. LA? Did you deal with the, did you deal with like if you're in LA, were there a lot of productions with with little people in it? Like, did you ever have to screen little people, or no. did you have to have to do anything? <laughs> and you know, most of those guys, uh, most of those, as they call them, little people, um, in the Wizard of Oz, those were uncredited uh, parts. Um, their names weren't in the credit roll at the end of the movie oh, because I, there were so many of them. Oh wow! I never thought of that. And in those I days, the of this was before the Screen Actors Guild, um, before actors were paid residuals on whatever they worked on. If you have, today, if you have a line in a movie, you're always going to get paid when that movie shows, um, and it just runs forever. As a matter of fact, I got a a check here uh, for some film I was in, and I got it on my office here. Uh, it was for a whopping three cents. Please tell me you framed that. You did. You didn't cash. Oh, it, did you did. Yeah, it's three cents, and there was another one for fifteen cents. <laughs> that was residual. And I get, so there, I get for overseas stuff. I get a kick out of this all the time because most of my stuff is direct deposit, um, and then I just see it in my uh, uh, report in the credit union. But um, if it's an overseas thing, they send you the check, and then uh, there's a list of what country you got paid from oh. and for a while there was a really big thing in portugal it made like 35 cents nice in spain <laughs> that's the biggest residual you have 12 cents and you know I, I just i love reading through that stuff and it's all for this one movie i think uh, you know or there's a uh pay tv pays a certain amount depends on when it shows and uh that's kind of cool to see that. Well, that so is now, cool. there, there was a movie that came out about a town called Binger, Montana. And I know that you were in that. That was War Party. Was, wasn't War oh, yeah. Party? Cupbank, Montana. is Because yeah. I remember I was there when it was going on, but Cupbank wasn't Cupbank. It was Binger. Because I remember these shirts that said, where in the hell is Binger, Montana? Well, it was just it was just from this movie, War Party. And you had a role in that, didn't you? They, I played – I was an extra uh, in it, and I was there – Pretty much a lot. Me and another guy were the uh, TV news reporters, and he was the camera guy. So he always had a camera over his shoulder and never really saw his face. But I had to stand there with a microphone all the time. Didn't have any lines. But um, yeah, I was there a lot when we shot that film. So they didn't have any little little people in that that I remember, did they? No. No, No, it was kind of interesting. 
interesting. Um, you know, I'm sitting in the bleachers a lot and I'm hanging out with a lot of these folks from Browning, which a lot of them knew me, just the name. Um, I also worked in extras casting on that the first uh, few weeks we were up there and the casting directors from L.A. and another girl that helped her was from Great Falls. And she still works as a casting director with a lot of Native Americans. But um, she was a little intimidated by me because she said, I don't know, how does everybody know your name around here? We said, well, my family run a funeral home here. And we did a lot of business in Browning and they know my name. And uh, so that's where they knew me from. From the funeral. Here from I'm funeral dealing business. with two white girls that were really felt out of place, Native American. Um, and uh, that didn't bother me. I grew up around that stuff all the time. Oh, yeah. What about the tourists that were there uh, that parked their car and went for a hike? I thought that was an <laughs> oh, interesting well, story. We were up at Chief Mountain. Now, if you look at the map, you got to get there on purpose. You just don't drive by. Chief Mountain uh, is in Glacier Park, which is right next to the mm -hmm. reservation. And there was an oil drilling platform up there years before. All that was uh, reclaimed, and but it was a nice road, and we could get all these trucks. We had like six semis full of equipment and everything, and and um, the couple. Well, there was probably fifty vehicles altogether up in that neighborhood, but there was this big clearing where we had this big shootout with the National Guard and the Indians come out through the the trees. And they're all, it was like Custer's last stand. I mean, guns going off everywhere as the Indians are charging down to the National Guard. And I was sitting up on the hill watching the scene, running like six cameras on this whole deal. It was a pretty big scene. And um, there probably was at least 100 extras, uh, Indians on horseback and uh, National Guard guys. And these couple of these tourists came walking hikers came walking up behind us and they're looking out here as the gunfire started and they just started oh my god what the hell is going on here and i turned around and says oh we're just you know doing this thing with the so national guard walking out of a, out of a hike and and this is going oh, on yeah. people are getting they're, shot they're, off they horses parked their car they had parked their car in the middle of that area where we were shooting and so a bunch of crew guys picked up the car and moved it about 100 feet away so it was out of the shot but, um, yeah, they thought this was a real thing going on and screaming and yelling and just being crazy. And I said, it's just a movie, folks. Uh, we all started laughing at them. There was five or six of us from the film. Oh, that would have been a perfect setup just to totally torment you know, these people. But like they just be couldn't believe what they were hearing when, when I said, it's just a movie. Don't worry about it. I think and, I would start out by saying, maybe you should other. help these people. No, maybe you should not. help those people out. Go down there and help those people. Maybe have them. Well, I just have said that. Y'all get down there and help them white folks because they're all going to get killed. <laughs> but, uh, oh, it's funny. And of course, some of the Indians or the stunt guys were falling off their horses. And I this all that took scene. place uh, in just a few, oh, maybe 30 seconds. But we shot that thing several times. Typical movie deal. You see on the screen for 30 seconds, takes all to shoot. But uh, that was the master shot. It had all these cameras running because they wanted to get different angles all the time. No, that was good. But yeah, after yeah. the firing, all, all the firing quit, and you hear the director over the, the PA yelling, cut, to go back to one. And they all kind of they looked and said, wow, it is a movie. Said, yeah, and yeah. your car is way down there in the parking lot. You can go now. <laughs> I didn't know there was a guy in the cupping. His name's Curtis Bushy, and I think he made twenty or thirty dollars a day 
just to be just to leave. He would always show up and stumble. <laughs> he, would, he would stumble around there. And like, who is this guy? It's Curtis Bushy. So I think every day when he would start heading that way, they just handed him twenty bucks and he headed right down to Pioneer because. He, <laughs> That's awesome. He was going to get in the middle of it one way or the other. And they just, so he probably made more than a lot of the people who had significant roles after the, being there for, he probably made several hundred dollars, 20 bucks a day. I think at the time were paying 35 to 40 bucks a day. So unless you have a horse. That paid 50 a day. Oh, now, how about that? And during the, the one scene shot just outside of Browning there, which was a reenactment of, the, of some fights, um, these Indians are riding, some of them riding bareback, and a couple of them falling around. Now I'm setting up in the stands with, uh, oh, some of these guys from Browning, and one of them was Leonard Mountain Chief, and, and uh, Earl Oldperson was there, you mm-hmm. know, he was chief for a long yeah. time. And, um, you know, these guys just start laughing, and I say, what are you laughing for? The guy fell off the horse, and he says, oh, he don't know how to ride. I said, well... What's he riding for? He says, well, that's his cousin. Everybody's got a cousin. That's his cousin's horse. He probably stole it for the day because he can make 50 bucks a day, and then he'll take the horse back, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's good, buddy. See, now, the but true Montana. These three guys kept falling off these horses all the time, and it was getting to be a little irritating to the the director uh, because they weren't the stuntmen, but they were still in the shot. And I thought, well, use it anyway. They didn't get hurt. I'm surprised they didn't get hurt, but um, and then of course real. you had the cavalry, which were all all these uh, white guys dressed up in these heavy wool uniforms that the cavalry used to have in those used to have in those days. Now poor guys are just dying of the heat, and uh, so they do the Indians charge one way, and then the, the cavalry charge the other way, and then they put them all together. And when you did that master shot with all these people coming together, and oh, everybody's going to run into each other. It's going to be a total nightmare. I just sat in the back in the stands watching it happen. And uh, it was well done. Unfortunately, I, I would have watched those three guys. I would like watching those three guys falling off the horse because um, that was a jackpot, right? Like that, you never knew it was going to okay. happen there. And, and the thing about uh, the, the Montana, if you get back to the Dempsey fight, I think that. Yeah. And not the Dempsey fight, but just take a little snippet of that. I bet you could have paid some of the the, the native Montanans. You could have paid them in sheep, and they would have appreciated it. <laughs> well, they <laughs> like probably they did horses more than with sheep. Well, yeah, no. I mean the sheep. The, I mean people people Montana. They know what to you do know, with the horse. Sheep. They don't have a clue what to do with. Well, maybe well, you just not don't trust. Days. You just don't trust what they. Say. I mean, any any speaking sheep, you don't trust a damn word they say. Hey RJ, I was going to ask you. Um, did you didn't you mention the other day that you um, you were the first uh, one of the first um, people that worked on the the Yellowstone um, series? As a, weren't you checking out the talent or something? Well, I was I was hired to work in extras casting on that in uh, Missoula and Hamilton, and uh, that was the time. You know, what's his name? Weinstein was involved with that in the beginning. And that's when he got in all kinds of trouble and they ended up firing him from his own company and just getting rid of him, basically. I thought that series was going to go down the tube because all that negative. Oh, so wait. So was Weinstein involved with Yellowstone when it first started? Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah, know that. Was him and his brother. Yeah. Oh, no kidding. Wow. And I mean, there's a long, long history about that whole project and how it took so long to get finally into production. But they were shooting some stuff in Montana, and um, 
lady that I usually work with in extras casting couldn't make it, and so she gave my name to them, and they called me, and I said, sure, I can do it for you. And I went to Missoula um, a couple of times, and uh, they didn't want me to really publicize this thing. Everybody I talked to knew what was in this show already. They already heard about it. But they were really upset that I actually used the star's name in uh, publicity. Everything that I do in casting, I use every avenue I can to get the word out. And in Montana, it doesn't take much. So the newspapers in Missoula area, Missoula and Hamilton and Darby, were calling me um, for just some information or an interview on what we were doing. And I had a casting call in Missoula with no publicity. I think I had 20 people show up. And the next time I did it, I had about 350 show up. And the following day in Hamilton, uh, the guy that they say sent up to help me, he he couldn't believe we were overrun with so many people. I said, well, that's typical when I advertise a thing. If I'm doing any kind of extras casting, I'll get anywhere from 800 to 1,000 people. And they come from all over Montana. And uh, we missed the mark on that one. I was eight people short of having 1,000 people crazy. short. That's crazy. Wow. That deal. And they thought and that was too many? People, um, well, it probably was. I mean, extras, basically extras are nothing more than furniture uh, <laughs> that walks. At least that's my impression. I've done a lot of extra work, and most of the time they just uh, grab somebody that's paying attention. Say, here, come here, sit here and do nothing. And uh, that's how it works. Um, well, that that show has turned I out like, to be pretty successful. I think it's it's entertaining oh, it's a enough. Huge success. And once they came to Montana, um, they really liked it. And at the time, we did not have an incentive program. We do now, and so they moved pretty much all of their production, or very close to all of it, uh, to Montana, down by Hamilton, Darby area. Um, some scenes there where they say they're in Bozeman. They're not in Bozeman. They're all in Missoula. I know, in the Bitter Valley. Yeah, yeah. Bitter. Yeah. Didn't they move? Um, did they? Was there a reason why they were filming in Montana? Was it? Was there labor, movie labor laws, or were they trying to escape some of the labor stuff in California? Well, um, what's his name? The director. I can't remember his name. Um, Tad anyway, Sheridan. He lives. Yeah, uh, a really successful guy. He was an actor. He didn't like it very much, or he just moved on to other things. He had a tough time getting where he wanted to be, and he's very successful as a writer and director. Um, I liked his attitude about that. He says, I don't tell actors how to direct, and they don't, don't tell me how to write, and we get along just fine. Mm-hmm. He's a really tough-looking guy. I mean, this is a He's in the movie. He's the guy that runs all the horses around him. Oh, really? And, yeah, and a lot of those horses are his. Um, they are. He has a ranch, I think, in Texas, I believe. It's called the Four Sixes. Yeah. Um, but out that's of that, his. Yellowstone has developed two or three other shows. So he's been very successful with that. And he came to Montana because um, that he liked it, and uh, Costner really liked it. So they found that ranch, and where our film office in Montana, Allison, um, is the office director Allison Whitmire. Anyway, she was after them for a long time and they finally came up to Montana and they looked at this ranch that she found for them down by Darby and they liked it. And so they said, okay, we're going to shoot here. 
Well, Brian, Brian, tell him, Brian, tell him about your experience at that and your buddy and the background with that. Well, my son Charles went to school with with uh, with the the owner of that ranch, his daughter. Oh yeah. They graduated. Yeah. They graduated. They went to Loyola Sacred Heart. She went to Loyola. She was actually the class president. And Charles was the vice president, and so um, yeah. they yeah they had their eighth grade graduation party, which was long before or before they. They started the Yellowstone. It was, it was held down at that ranch. So I, we, we spent the day down there at the ranch before it was Yellowstone Ranch. It, it is what is today called the Nez or uh, Chief Joseph Ranch, I think is what, Chief what Joseph, the yeah. actual name of it. Yeah. The ranch. But yeah, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful spring. But ESPN did a thing out in Bozeman not too long ago, and I saw one of the signs up there said, uh, "Yellowstone is a show. Please stop moving here." <laughs> <laughs> And another one, Those you mentioned overrun with celebrity types. Anyway, you get down yeah. in the in the Paradise right. Valley over by Livingston. There's been a lot of celebrity types and movie people that have lived down there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the locals just go, yeah, okay. So you know, uh, Peter Fonda lives here and and lived there at the time, and and his daughter and son went to school at Bozeman, um, and. Uh, uh, Mel Gibson on the ranch up the road a ways there. Well, there's a bunch of them that are around. Just not the Montana Still. people just aren't impressed. We're like, okay, whatever. But um, oh, yeah. hey, what were we? We were talking about um, Chaplin. What was it? What were you t- saying about Chaplin, Brian? No, no. Ryan? In B- so Butemont. So uh, we were talking about this before. Um, during the t- like the turn of the century, like you know, to have this prize fight in Montana was kind of like you know you you wouldn't imagine. But at the time, around the turn of the century, Butte, Montana had oh a hundred thousand people there, it, and it was a place where people would cross. Charlie Chaplin saw one of his first mo- movies ever in Butte, Montana, which kind of inspired him to get into acting. I think. He- he was, Raji mentioned, he was maybe was on his way to California or whatever, but he came through Butte, saw one of his first movies, and that kind of sparked his interest. He was doing a lot of uh, old theater, uh, I forget what they called it in those days. And, uh, yeah, he saw a film in Butte, and went, well, this is kind of interesting. Pe- people really knew where Butte, Montana was. I mean, it was a big place. And and Helena, Montana had the large, the Broadwater um, they had like a hot springs there. It was like it was yep. it was the largest hot water. Um, you know, they had a big building there and a hotel, but it was the largest one this side of the Mississippi. So it was a destination for people that were coming out. Mm-hmm. Helena had more millionaires per capita at the turn of the century, which there was a millionaires club. In order to be part of the millionaires club, you had to have a million dollars in the bank. It wasn't like you were worth yeah. a million. And they had over a hundred members at the turn of the century in Helena. So at the time, Montana was. You know, there was a lot of places you could mention, Butte, Montana, Helena, Montana, and to have it in Shelby, have the largest sporting event at the time in <clears> Shelby, Montana, is a, is a kind of an interesting little read, or at least kind of look back into Montana history. I think it's really, a lot of people don't know about it. Yeah, of course, I'm a little so, shy of that million dollars, but fortunately, the membership now, I think, is about a hundred bucks. So. <laughs> but it has to be cash. <laughs> you have to have cash. You can't, it's can't, not just equity, not on paper. You have to have a hundred cash. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> well, 1923. Another uh, project this guy had, a lot of it was shot in Butte. You get down to the older section of town, and a lot of that, all you can do is spread a bunch of dirt around the streets. Yep. And you got something that looks like the real thing. And they're um, abandoned buildings to this day. A lot of them, there's nothing in them. No, no. And they're just there. Yep. And you know the old story about Butte. When I was in college in Missoula, I had some friends that uh, who were from there and you know, and one day one of them says, uh, we're going to win this week. Do you want to go with us? And they said, 
you go into what? What are you talking about? Says, well, we're going into Butte. What do you mean? In. Yeah, we're going in. Yeah, that's the thing. We're going okay. in. Okay. Like people from Butte, Butte, Butte going is in. the center of the universe. And if you go anywhere else, well, you're going <laughs> That sounds like Boston. They, they say that to this day. I have, friends from, I have friends from Butte, and they're like, are you going in? Like, if they're talking oh, yeah. to another buddy there from Butte, are you going to go in? They know exactly <laughs> and the only, really, in only the really good place was to get, to get pork chop John sandwiches was oh, in yeah. Butte. Everybody else was second place. Oh, absolutely. And Knievel was from Butte. Actually, Knievel right. had a Evil Knievel. ship in Butte. Probably the only one that ever existed in Montana. Oh, Evil Knievel had a had a Rolls Royce dealership in Butte. Oh yeah. Oh no, kidding. Hey Brian, tell them about when you met him at the the doctor's office. So I, I I was cutting my teeth in the pharmaceutical, and I was in Las Vegas, probably my first or second year, and so. The way that we do it, we go into a doctor's clinic and we wait there to talk to the doctor. He's coming out of an office and pitch our drug and then out the door we go. So I'm standing there waiting, kind of by the nurse's station. And I hear someone say, oh, right this way, Mr. Knievel. I'm like, okay, hold on a second. (laughs) Now that's not like Mr. Smith or Mr. Jones, right? Okay, Mr. Knievel. And sure enough, around the corner was this big old dude with a beard on. And right next to him was this frail little man, um, evil Knievel, for sure. He had had the silver hair and he had a silk shirt, button-up shirt that had a pattern on in front of it. And it had a mice, it had a mouse riding a motorcycle straight at you with high with high handlebars. And so I'm like, yeah. Mr. Kennedy, I go, hey, I'm from Montana. And he he's like, Oh my God, this is great. Talked for probably 10 seconds. Well, then I go out in the parking lot in the back and I'm getting samples of my product to take back in. Well, Evil Knievel and his bodyguard, whoever this big guy was, come out the back and they walked right towards me and he said, Hey. We're going to have a big festival up in Butte this year. You got to come down. Free beer, free food. You got to make it. I'm like, okay, you know, that sounds good to me. Well, that was the first ever Evil Knievel days that he was doing, and he was he was kind of promoting it. But he lived in Vegas, of course. You know, he that's kind of his thing. Oh, yeah. But at the time, he lived in Vegas. But once he knew that I was from Montana, he was putting the word out that free beer, free – that's how he pitched it. It wasn't about the motorcycles. It wasn't about the stunts <laughs> that they did on the motorcycles. Free beer and free food. We're going to party all weekend. Yeah. We had a guy. From, we, we had a guy from Cutbank. Yeah. One day we'll tell a story on the podcast since we're about ready to wrap this one up. But we had a, <clears throat> there was a guy in Cutbank that Brian and I knew, and his nickname was not Evil Knievel. His nickname was Never Can Never. No, <laughs> because of his failed attempts. His failed <laughs> attempts on the motorcycle. <clears throat> hey Brian, do you have a um? So we're gonna wrap this up with Brian's um, with our sponsor. But um, RJ, thank you. I I'm so we are so grateful that you came on today, and we love we always love hearing your stories. So thank you very much. Well, you know, one of my favorite people was uh, Charlie Russell and uh, Will Rogers. Will Rogers always said that all his stories were true. It's just some of them haven't happened yet. <laughs> now, most of I my love stories that. I have happened. never heard that. Oh yeah, that's, I love that's that. awesome. Yeah, that's a great quote. I think Charlie Russell <laughs> said, "If you're lucky enough to go to heaven, you'll come through Montana on your way there." So, oh yeah, it's a, it's yeah, a plug for Montana. Stay in Montana. <laughs> yeah. So yes, th- we have a sponsor today, and it and it comes right up here in Montana, a local business. Um, we talked about a lot of the filming that was done for the movie War Party over there in the Cup Bank. In Browning area, and this sponsor comes from the Heart Butte Distillery. They come with a product that is shipped nationwide. It's Thunderbird Malt Liquor, and it has been it has been around since the fifties. People know it very well, um, and 
you know, they used to run ads back in the 50s and 60s. Now it sells itself. You know, you've heard that before, Thunderbird. Uh, but their, their slogan is, what's the word? Thunderbird. What's the thrill? Keep it chilled. How's it sold? Nice and cold. What's the price? 30 twice. What's the jive? Birds alive. Thunderbird. Malt liquor. Tastes <laughs> like your hand smells after pumping gas. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, well, hey, um, we got a couple of things to note, to note here. So um, I'm really looking forward to this, and it kind of came from the listener, so thanks for the idea. But we decided that this month we're going to we're going to shoot two we do our podcast on Skype and then I drop it into audio but we've got um we're going to we're going to have two two Skype shoots with probably six six people on each one and they're going to be we're going to we're actually inviting a couple of the people that are we kind of feel like are you know our our most loyal listeners and um and then we're going to combine those two and we're going to have an, a, a, an episode of our annual, I guess it'll be the first annual Quigley Awards, which will have the first, um, it'll be, we've got, I think, like I said, we've got like 1,300 people that have already voted, but um, for the, the, be, the best uh, podcast episode, the best guest, and the best moment. And so if you, you know, we're, we're still tallying those up. So if you want to add in or email just any anything, little moment that you like, um, email small town shenanigans at yahoo.com. We'd love to hear from you. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. We're going to have some good guests on there that are, um, they're fun people. And, uh, you got anything else to say about that, Brian? <clears throat> no, I'm interested. I mean, the, the first annual of anything is always interesting because you, <laughs> the, the bar is not set and it can go in a hundred different directions. So I'm just excited that it's the first, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm all about, you know, the, the things that come out of nowhere. And so, um, yeah, that's about it. I'm looking forward to it. The Quigleys. <laughs> I like the name. It's really good. It's catchy. Isn't it? Well, now, now, <laughs> I, Archie, I don't know. When I first you know. said it, I thought you said Twiggly. Yeah, okay, that's cool, but it's not quite that. But I don't care. Well, it Brian, sounds really why cool. don't you explain to the listeners and also RJ where we came up with that name? Brian. So in our first oh, well. episode, when when in our first episode we were we were uh, plugging the uh, plugging the um, you know the lottery ticket, the the gal who busted us was a gal by the name of Nell Quigley, and uh, <laughs> she has gone down inf- infamously. There's 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 names that just catch. You know, there's a couple names that we throw out there, um, Doogie Denton, Nell Quigley, <laughs> and they just kind of have a nice ring to it. And the fact Salt that you need. The fact that you picked up on RJ is exactly why it's called the Quigleys because you like it has a nice ring to it. So she was oh, in yeah. our first episode, and so that's going to be our forever. Our our Quigleys are going to be our award <laughs> show. So that's where it that's came. That's the foundation. It's very good. And I always cool. wrap up the episode with the most ridiculous comment ever. I don't think anybody's ever uttered, uttered these two words before, but don't forget every shenanigan must transcend. Thank you.